appreciate that song. How many of you have been through storms in your life? If you don't raise your hand, you're either not listening or maybe shy or... I don't know where you've been living. Because life is full of storms. And I'm thankful that we serve a God, no matter how painful, how hard, how difficult things get, when He's ready, because it's actually when it's best, He can say, peace be still. Might not happen when we think it should, but we serve a God that can calm everything. And I'm thankful for that. I want to begin by reading a verse. And then I won't actually spend much time this morning in the Bible as a text. So, before I say anything else, I want to say, if this is the only time you've ever heard me preach, don't base how I preach on this message. Don't think, that preacher doesn't even use the Bible. (laughs) Don't think that. I have something on my heart that, again, is going to take more than one message to teach and preach. I can't get it all out unless y'all want to stay here about five hours. And I don't think that's really possible in our culture. So here's what I'm asking for you. Pay attention. Listen. Try to engage your minds. But more importantly, let God open your heart. That He'll teach with His Holy Spirit what we need to know. And here's what's on my heart. The ecclesia. Do you all know that word? Have you heard the word before, the ecclesia? Ecclesia. If you've heard me preach much, you've heard it. Uh, if you haven't, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. It's, it's the Greek word that should be translated congregation, but where we get the word church. That's, that's what I need to preach about, what's on my heart. This body of Christ. If I had a title, and it'll, like I said, I, I'm going to follow the Lord each week, but it's going to take more than today, and I don't know if this will be a series or if I'll come back to it at different times. I just don't know. But what I've been burdened with is, is the body of Christ and how she functions with Jesus as her head. But I want to read this verse before we go any further. 1 Corinthians 2.9 I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. Well, let's pause there and then I'll read the rest of the verse. We hear that. Song writers have read that verse and a lot of times we translate it into heaven. You know the song, As we walk down streets of pure gold on entering heaven and the eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. This is not talking about heaven primarily. This is talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ, which He has given us already. He is the fulfillment of all prophecy. And I'm not sure how we we got a little bit sidetracked on getting all our focus on heaven. All our focus is supposed to be on Jesus. And let me just say, if you don't enjoy the presence of Jesus, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Because He is the light. He is the permeating presence there. It's not about streets of gold and jasper and pearl and all that stuff. All that stuff, I don't even know if it's literal or not. I'm not sure. Heaven is bigger and better than anything we can imagine and different than anything we can conceptualize here. And the center of it is the Lamb who's taken away the sins of the world and who is the light. There's no light, no sun needed in heaven because Jesus is radiating His glory constantly. 
So the rest of this verse, I hath not seen, neither ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him, but he has revealed them to us by his son. In English, that's past perfect. It has already happened. Beautiful. The Hebrew letter tells us that in times past, God spoke in different ways and different manners, but in these last days, has spoken unto us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, by whom He made the worlds. Why do I bring all that out, and what does it have to do with the congregation of God, the family of God? Jesus spent His time on earth ultimately establishing the ecclesia. That's why it matters. That's why this verse ties in this morning. So, um, I'm going to pray. Because this is a heavy burden on my heart, and yet it's going to require a more academic approach than I'm comfortable with. It's hard for me. I like preaching extemporaneously. I don't like notes. I never write a manuscript for a sermon. I don't like too much preparation. It makes me feel smothered spiritually. But today I've had to try to bring some of that in because I don't know how to get this across without the Lord's help and without us engaging our minds. So um, let's pray and then just really try to listen and I won't go too long today. Lord Jesus, Holy Father, Holy Spirit, come, anoint me with your presence, open our minds and hearts, let everything that is said in this message be for the building up of this body, but ultimately for your glory, that we will understand truths that maybe some of us never knew, some of us have forgotten, or some of us have been just wrong about, and maybe some of us will understand truths that we knew were right, but now we have a greater foundation. Keep our eyes on you. Help me, your feeble messenger, to be used by you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The Ecclesia. There are seven primary factors or categories that influence how a congregation functions. And I think when I go through these, you may, you may think, well, there's other things. There are, but I think they'll all fit into one of these categories. Seven categories or factors that influence how we do church. And this list, it's not all-encompassing, but generally speaking, I think everything will, will fit here. The first one, if you take notes, you can go ahead and put number one, and then I'll give you the heading. The first category is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. That's number one. The life and teachings of Jesus Christ. That should be the single greatest influence on how a congregation worships and conducts business. To use a colloquial phrase, does church. The single greatest influence, our single most determining measure for whether we are doing things in a way that pleases God is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. That can't be said about every church, can it? It can't even always be said about this church because congregations are comprised of individuals who are broken, sinful, messed up people. How many of you have a perfect physical body? Not even my little baby does. 
And she might be closer than most of us at, at around one years old, right? But she's still, she, her body is not without um, the influence of a fallen world. And this congregation, this church body, is not without the influence of the fallen world that we're in. There's no perfect human body until the Lord resurrects us and gives us our glorified bodies. On this earth, there's no perfect human bodies. There's no perfect church bodies. That's the first thing. We need to just get okay with that. A lot of people shop around and try to find different church. And, and a lot of people, they get excited. All these people come in. They stay a couple years and go somewhere else. It's just a recycling. We need to figure out what is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. This is everything that he explicitly commanded while he was here. The, very, the, 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 the biggest thing is... What did Jesus say specifically do this? What did he command? And also everything he implicitly taught. Implicitly means he might not have come right out and said, do this, but he lived it, he taught it, and we can see by his example that it's something we ought to do. Everything he modeled in his own life and actions, and this, like I said, this number one, the life and teachings of Jesus is the most important thing. If you don't get anything else out of the rest of this message, and if you forget all the other six points, remember this one. The primary focus of the Lord's congregation should be what Jesus taught, commanded, and lived. The life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He created His body, the congregation, the ecclesia. He's the one who established it. We wouldn't be here without him. He's the one who came up with it and established how it ought to be. So what matters most is, is what he thinks, what he did, what he taught. He said, I've said this a lot lately, but we need to remember. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we could really latch on to that. If we could really get that, I could be done preaching today. And we could be done with most of our distractions as a congregation. If we could really get that. And I spent five weeks preaching about power from on high, which is basically that. That Jesus gave us himself. Not a religion, not a denomination, not a church building, not a bunch of ideas, not rules, not customs, himself. Now, you'll see in this series of teaching that it doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to have any of those things. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I need to say, if you want to have a congregation that operates in a um, non-chaotic manner, there has to be some sort of organization. There has to be. We come here at a certain time, otherwise nobody would know when to be here. Right? There's, there's, it's necessary to have some type of organization, but it can't be all encompassing. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The second point. The first one. What's the first one? Now, I want to say it. The, the life and teachings of Jesus. First point. Life and teachings of Jesus. Okay. Second point is everything that is explicitly taught in Scripture. The greatest influence on how we worship and conduct church business should be the life and teachings of Jesus. The second greatest influence should be everything explicitly taught in this book. This should be the first place you go. And when God put this message on my heart, I didn't go to commentaries. I didn't go to what a bunch of people thought. I didn't go to seminary books. 
I got on my knees and I went to this book. Because we have too much religious noise. I want to know what Jesus desires, what God is pleased with, and what He taught. And so that's the second greatest influence is what is explicitly taught in Scripture. You might call those the doctrines of the Lord's congregation. One of the things that is explicitly taught in Scripture, and I'll spend more time on later, is that we are a body, that Jesus Christ is our head, and that as a body, every part of the body, every member of the body has a voice. There's no boss. And Brother Allen gets tickled at me, I think, because I've said so many times since I've been here, I'm not the boss. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not the authority. I'm not the ruler. I'm not the CEO. I'm not the decider of anything. All I am is the messenger of God. Now, I don't mind if you talk to me. I don't mind if you ask for direction, if you need counsel, wisdom. But I want you to know I'm not in a position of leadership in that sense. I'm in a position of servanthood. Do you understand the difference? Jesus didn't boss everybody around. He, he commanded what they should do, and then He served them from the heart. Your body, uh, and then I'll move on. Every, every part of your body, I said it has a voice. It's not a tongue and a mouth, but it, it sends messages through your nervous system and spinal cord to the head. You, you could smash your finger, and your finger will tell your head it didn't like it. In a congregation, every part of the congregation, you might be metaphorically an ear, you might be a mouth, you might be a little toe, you might not even be sure what you are. But God is uh, glad you're here, and I'm glad you're here, and I want you to know you have a purpose and a place and a voice. But we can't forget that every uh, part of the body is ultimately governed by the head. Now, who's the head? Jesus. Jesus, not me. Not the Pope, not some priest, not some bishop, not some community leader, not the head of any convention, Jesus. And He has to ultimately let us know what's right. We'll spend more time on each of these points later, but I, I just want to get a general overview today. The first thing, the life and teachings of Jesus. The second thing, everything that's explicitly taught in Scripture. So how should a New Testament congregation function? We get a lot of that from the Apostle Paul's letters. A lot of how we do church comes from what the Apostle Paul taught. And that's good. It should. As long as we don't put it above what Jesus commanded and lived. Some people... Uh, Listen to more of what Paul thinks than what Jesus thinks. <laughs> we don't need to do that. The third thing. Everything that's implicitly taught in Scripture. The difference in explicit and implicit. Explicit is said right out loud. It's, it's very direct. It's clear. The things that are implicitly taught in Scripture. These are the things that... You may sincerely from your heart wonder how you should approach a situation at work, a situation with your wife, a situation with something else, and you say, but the Bible doesn't say anything about that. There are a lot of things I shouldn't do as a child of God that the New Testament doesn't specifically say, don't do that. And there are things that I should do as a child of God and a church member that the New Testament doesn't specifically say, don't do that. If it did, this room would be full of the book called the Bible. I'm not being hyperbolic. 
If this told us everything we should do literally, it would be so big we couldn't use it. So instead, God gave us a perfect example in Jesus Christ who gave some clear commands that must be followed, and then He gave us explicit teachings in Scripture. The most important things are spelled out. And then He gave us implicit teachings. Those are the things that we may not have specifically the words that say, do this or don't do this, but the heart of it is there. These, number two and number three, number two is everything explicitly thought, number three is everything implicitly taught. Number two and number three help us understand how to observe number one. What's number one? The life and teachings of Jesus. The explicit and implicit teachings of Scripture, the reason they're there is to help us understand how to do what Jesus already commanded, modeled, and lived. So if you're in a situation where you can either know Jesus or have the Bible, and don't take this too far, but which one's more important? Knowing Jesus. There are Christians all over the world who don't have the Bible like this. They might have passages memorized. They might have the words written in their heart, but they've never had this because it's illegal and they'll be killed if they have it. You know that still right now. And there's millions of people who have this book and know nothing about the power, presence, and love of God. Everything in here is to help us understand what Jesus already said and did. So those are the first three points. The, the scriptures, I'll say one more thing about the third point. And I'll just go ahead and say again, this isn't like my normal preaching. It's okay, relax. Listen, this is necessary. It'll be more exciting later. <laughs> We're not here to generate emotionalism. We're here to preach the whole counsel of God and then live what He wants lived. And sometimes we have to understand things. Uh, the Scriptures help condition our minds so that we can serve Christ acceptably. There's a lot of people with sincere hearts who've been caught up in different flavors of religion that are just wild. It's because they haven't conformed themselves to the explicit and implicit teaching of Scripture. A lot of, a lot of religious noise will be silenced if people get in the Word of God. So the, the fourth point is everything God has written in our hearts. I don't know if you're as thankful for this as I am, but I am so thankful we serve a God who writes His laws in our hearts. You don't have to be super smart. In fact, being smart is the exception. Not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the people which are nothing to bring to nothing those people who think they are something. Why? That no flesh should glory in the sight of God. Now, I'll tell you, false humility does nothing for anybody, so I'm not going to be falsely humble. I don't think I'm a dumb person. And I don't think you think so either. I did fine in college. But that doesn't make me a good preacher. I know some good preachers that aren't that smart. That's fine. 
it's not a matter of what we know or intelligence, but we do need to know things and we should seek to understand what God wants. And brothers and sisters, if you're a member of the Lord's church, if you're here, if you're trying to serve Him, and you're not at least occasionally reading this, that's a problem. It doesn't matter if you're not good at books or not academic or not smart or it's hard for you to sit down and read. I understand all of that. And the Lord is more merciful about it probably than you are to yourself. But you still need to spend time trying to figure out what He says. And if this translation is too difficult, get a different one. And you may not like that, but I'm going to preach about that too. The point of the Word of God is to understand the Word of God. Not to be stuck in some high church language that you can't understand. So the Scriptures help us condition our minds so we can serve Christ acceptably. And then the fourth point, God has written in our hearts... (laughs) Jeremiah 31.33, This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Have you met people in your life, I have, who knew almost nothing in their mind, yet later they learned it. They didn't know much religious stuff, but they had the love of God, the law of God in their heart. My grandfather used to talk about his mother who was saved after he was she was a, a, not a Christian, kind of a, a good woman, but a, a hard woman. And once God saved her, he said she could pat people on the chest. He said she didn't know the Bible, couldn't quote a verse. He said she'd pat people on the chest where their heart is and say, Honey, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? He said they would melt. Tough people, hard sinners. Who you think that's more effective or somebody that can argue with you theologically, but they don't change you? Now, we should be able to present a defense and understand why we believe what we believe, but it's deeper than that. Spiritual things can only be spiritually understood. And I'd rather have the power of God than the wisdom of my mind if I have to have one or the other. And sometimes the two are competing. Romans 2.14, When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. What does that mean? He's talking about a group of people who weren't churched, who weren't religiously educated and taught. They were basically pagan. They had a bunch of religious noise, like a lot of people in our culture. And he said, when God saves one of those people, which a lot of the people he was writing to were Gentiles. Basically, we're Gentiles, most of us. I don't know that there's any Orthodox Jews here that that I'm aware of. There may be some listening, but we're, we're basically Gentiles. Something else other than the Jews. And when God saves a person, when He changes that person, you are given a new nature. You're no longer what you used to be. It doesn't mean you don't still sin. It doesn't mean you don't still have problems. It doesn't mean you don't still have a personality. I have a personality that can be difficult. It can be harsh. It can be too direct. God didn't take that away when He saved me. He gave me a new heart. And He gave me the Holy Spirit, which helps to temper some of that. When these Gentiles who don't have the law, in other words, they've never been conditioned under religious authority... But they do by nature the things that the law teaches. They may have never read Moses and the prophets, and yet they observe the heart of the commandment of God. How? Because God wrote the law in their hearts. 
I've met people everywhere I've been, literally, all over, I haven't been everywhere in the world, but all over the world I've met people who theologically, maybe we didn't think the same thing, maybe they didn't understand it in their head, but they knew God. Had the law of God in here. That's what this is talking about. They are a law unto themselves. So the fourth point, what God has written in our hearts. These four points, I think so far, are the most important in how a congregation worships God and conducts its business. You notice I haven't got into any religious stuff yet. The fifth point, the fifth category. I want to repeat the first four because I want us to get this. The first, the most important, the life and teachings of Jesus. The second, everything explicitly taught in Scripture. The third, everything implicitly taught in Scripture. The fourth, the law God has written in our hearts. And the fifth category we're going to talk about is what is revealed by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit and prompted by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God shows you things you don't understand. Sometimes He leads you to talk to a person and you don't know why. Sometimes a person seems to be great and deep inside you just know they're not. And you're afraid to admit it to yourself because you've been conditioned that that's not very nice or it's judgmental. Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit warning you that that person is a bad person. The Holy Spirit can do all of that. Sometimes in the service, the Holy Spirit will lead somebody to testify or to sing a song or something. But a lot of times, people get up and do that stuff on their own and the Holy Spirit reveals to the heart of His sincere followers that that person is just getting attention. And I've preached this here, I've preached at other places, but I'll say it again. How do we know if an apparent manifestation in a service is from God or not? Say, well, I'll feel it. You might. You might be cold that day. You might be off. You might be sinful that day. That's that's part of it. Say, well, well, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. It doesn't say your spirit bears witness with my spirit all the time. Although that does happen. There's, there's a, a kindredness. The primary way you know whether something is really revealed by the Holy Spirit or led by the Holy Spirit is, does it draw your attention to Him? Or to the person doing it? That's the primary way we know. Somebody gets up and says they have a word, they have a testimony, they have something God showed them. When they get done, is there something inside of you that's more hungry for God, closer to God, more desiring of God? Or are you just like, that person just wanted to get up and talk? And both things happen in the Lord's house. That's okay. But, but we don't need to be afraid to admit it. Number four and number five, what God has written in our hearts and what God leads and reveals through His Holy Spirit, help us actually observe the first category. The first category is the life and teachings of Jesus, so what Jesus commanded. And the second, two and three, are the teachings of Scripture. Two and three help us understand the teachings of Jesus. And then four and five help us actually do what He asked us to do, what He commanded us to do. 
You can't serve God acceptably without His help. I think I might have mentioned this, but my perspective of God and how He looks at us has expanded infinitely after He gave me a child. I didn't used to think of God, a lot of people think of God as being some mean person in the sky who throws down lightning bolts and punishes you all the time. I never thought of him like that. I thought of him as a loving God. But I, I couldn't grasp how tender he is toward us until I had a baby. And even then, I'm only scratching the surface because I'm imperfect. What I'm trying to say is God helps us do what he wants us to do through his Holy Spirit. And the analogy I'm trying to give is there are things that we're trying to teach our baby, our little girl. We're trying to teach her important attributes to be a functional human. My goal is not for her to grow into a well-behaved child, but a a beneficial, God-fearing adult. I don't want her to stay a kid all her life. And so we're already trying to teach her things. We're already trying to help her understand that she can contribute and have responsibilities. We can't tell all that to her because she's a baby. But she likes cleaning up her toys and putting up her book and throwing away her diapers. She can't reach the trash can. She can't crawl with her diaper in her hand. So we change her diaper. She can't do that either. And then she picks it up. And then we carry her to the trash can. And then we open the lid. And then she throws it in. And sometimes she misses. And we don't get mad. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how God works with us through the Holy Spirit. He lets us know we should do something. Not always by inspiration. Sometimes it's something he already taught. There are things God has taught you in this book that you don't need to be inspired to do. He already told you. And then, once he tells us, he picks us up with his Holy Spirit and carries us over to the thing and helps us do it. What a merciful, beautiful, kind God we serve. The things that are revealed by the Holy Spirit help us observe the commands of Jesus. Now, I've spent some time on five categories, five influences on the Lord's congregation. Number six is what a lot of religious people focus on the most. The sixth category is everything else that complements or actually helps or contributes to the first five things. The first five things are what really matters, and the first thing matters the most. Number six is everything that helps us do that. So it's nice that we have a building. It's nice that somebody made sure the heat's on. It's nice that that somebody leads singing. It's nice that all these things, but none of these things are essential to being a New Testament congregation. It's just how we do it. And that's okay, because you need some kind of order and structure. But it, it is so far secondary to the spiritual things. We must remember that. This category six is the, the, the beneficial traditions, customs, and habits. These aren't necessarily doctrinal points. It's just the things we're used to. The kind of songbooks we use, whether we have a piano or an organ or not. That stuff. Uh, these aren't hills to die on in this category. And too many churches have had too much problems from too many members fighting about stuff in category number six and not focusing on the first five. 
I've told you, I've heard of people arguing about what kind of cleaner the church has to buy, what kind of toilet paper, what color carpet. None of this stuff matters. Even the heater here, that's a, that's a big purchase. It's a big financial expenditure. But I told Brother David, I said, listen, the, the, the congregation already authorized you and the trustees to, to, to get what you think is best. Just do it. <laughs> Didn't I? Because we don't, it doesn't matter compared to why we're here. It's necessary, but not the most important. This category, they're the things that they might be useful, but we need to be willing to let go of them the second that they get in the way of any of the first five things. The moment that our beneficial tradition gets in the way of us loving an outsider coming in, we need to let go of it. The very moment that something we're comfortable with and used to distracts from the presence of God and the worship of His name, we must let go of it. Doesn't mean we can't have it, but we can't cling to it. No man can serve two masters. You say, well, that applies to money. No, it doesn't. It applies to more than that. And it applies here as well. You can't cling to your comfort zone and still press toward Jesus at the same time. It doesn't work. Say, gosh, that's, that's mean, uh, Pastor. You're too hard. I'm not trying to be hard or mean, but these things are in my heart. And we have to get it as a congregation to be able to be used by God. The seventh category is, is, is we'd be better off without this one at all. But it does have an influence. Let me run through these one more time, make sure we have them all. The life and teachings of Jesus is the first thing, His commandments. The second thing is explicitly taught in Scripture. Third is everything implicitly taught in Scripture. The fourth is what God has written in our hearts. The fifth, what He has revealed by His Holy Spirit and continues to reveal. The sixth is is everything else that's beneficial to accomplishing those. And the seventh category is all the other stuff that isn't inherently beneficial. The religious noise. The, uh, the muddy traditions we're stuck in, like miry clay. Antiquated ideas are in this category, but so are progressive ideas. Because people are not automatically going to be drawn closer to God if you sing praise and worship music. They're not automatically going to be drawn closer to God if you sing congregational stuff from the 50s. Both of those things are nice sometimes. And depending on what culture you're in, one might be a little bit more uh, well-received than the other. That's okay. When the Apostle Paul went and spoke to a bunch of Greeks at the Areopagus, the King James says Mars Hill, he didn't bring out Moses and the prophets and start... He didn't read a big chapter and then expositionally preach to them. He observed what was in their culture. He found an inscription to one of their false idols that said to the unknown God. And he said, when I was walking, I saw this inscription that said to the unknown God, Him I'm going to declare to you. He is the one, the one that you know He's out there, but you don't know His name. Let me tell you who He is. He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets already said, He used their culture to reach them. Their books, their poets. But he still told them the truth. 
So this seventh category, some of it might be okay, some of it might be evil. Maybe it's unclear if it's good or evil. But this is the category, we just need to go ahead and let go of it. All the other stuff, all the religious noise, we need to just let go of it if we want to have what God wants for us. Say, well, that's not how we do it. Okay, why? Is it because of one of the first five categories or just because of this one? Some of you weren't here when I told the analogy of the ham and the pan. Some of you were, but I'll say it again because it, it drives the point home. There was Thanksgiving, a family was cooking, and, and the, the young granddaughter, she never cooked much. And she wanted to make the ham, and so she started making it the way that she'd been taught. She prepared it, and cut off the end, and put it in the pan. And she went to her mom and said, yeah, I was thinking, why do we cut the end of the ham off? And she said, I don't know, let's go ask my mom, your grandmother. She went and asked her, and she said, well, I just did it that way because my mama did it that way. And thankfully, the great-grandmother was still alive, and so they went and asked her. And she was, she was sitting down. She was old. She was like 90-something. And they said, uh, how come when we make the ham, we cut the end off before we put it in the pan? And she said, well, honey, I didn't have a big enough pan. Do you get it? I don't tell jokes when I preach. I don't tell stories. But that story illustrates what I'm talking about. God has a bigger pan than anything we've put together in category six or seven. He has a big pan he wants to use to cook up what he wants to make. And we're so busy cutting the end off the ham and putting it in a small pan that we don't even realize he has something so much better. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love Him, but He has revealed it, and He's continuing to reveal it through Jesus and through His Spirit. So as I, as I preach about these things over however long it takes, I want you to be asking yourself, do I want to be a cut-the-end-off-the-ham Christian, or do I want to be a full-pan Christian? It's up to you. God gives each of us the measure of His presence and Spirit that we deeply desire in our hearts. No more. A lot of you don't want to be made uncomfortable by the power of God. Maybe a few of you do. But the only way we're going to have the full measure of His Spirit is to be completely rocked out of our comfort zone. And that's not an emotional thing. It's deeper than that. That's the overview. That's, you can see what's in my heart and what I'm going to spend some time with the Holy Spirit teaching on in the near future. I want to ask you some questions and then I might be almost finished with this time. You can see, I'm try, I don't have a plan or a formula. I'm trying to, trying to be sensitive to the nudgings of the Spirit inside. But I don't want to be too long either because that's a thing too. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Because really, before we can understand or spend much time on these seven categories, we need to back up and even ask ourselves, what's the church? I just talked to you a bunch about influential categories on the church. But if I ask you, what is the church? Think about that for a moment. How would a non-churched person respond to that? 
You met any of those? Are you any of those? Did you used to be one of those? If you are, you're some of my favorite people. Religious people are tough for me. You know what? They were hard for Jesus too. I love honest-hearted sinners. So did Jesus. If you ask a non-church person, what's the church? Their answer might be formed based on their own experience with presumed Christians, and that experience might have been bad or good. Right? So a non-church person, you say, what's the church? They're around some phony church members at their workplace. They're going to think the church is phony. You ask a non-church person, what is the church? And they, they, maybe they had a car wreck or something, or their child was sick, and the local congregation brought them food and, and cleaned their house and took care of them. They're going to think the church is about service, right? That's how a non-churched person is, is going to have their answer formed. They might be bitter if they've had bad experiences, or they might have a generally benign opinion if they've had good experiences. But their answer is not going to be well informed from any particular experience of their own selves if, if, they're not, if they haven't been there and experienced it. People who haven't been here experiencing what's going on here lately, they don't get it. They don't miss, they're, they're missing out. This is, we're not just here doing some stuffy religious thing. There's, there's something real happening. Um, how would a nominal Christian respond to the question, what's the church? And by nominal, I mean somebody who says, I'm a Christian. They say, I'm a Christian, but that's just, they just vaguely believe in God and they don't assemble with any particular congregation or hold to any particular creed. How would that person respond? And how would a church person respond? Now, a lot of people in here are what we would consider church people. We've spent a lot of time in church and maybe different kinds, but how would we respond? What do we think the church is? What do you think it is? And I want you to get this before we finish. Uh, The response of a church person might be based primarily on their own religious culture that they're familiar with and not any of the first five points I talked about. Not the commands of Jesus, not the explicit and implicit teachings of Scripture, not the revelation of the Holy Spirit, not the law written in their hearts. They think the church is what they screw up seeing inside of a particular building. And in fact, some people just think the church is the building. Literally. They might say, I'm talking about a church person, they might say without even realizing it, a church is what my church is. And their answer, it might have more to do with socioeconomic and other cultural factors than anything else. If you grew up in a small, old-fashioned country church, you might think church has a lot to do with loud, hollering preachers who pace back and forth and run up and down and throw their jackets off and sweat a lot. You might think that's church. If you grew up in a more... Oh, and and I had a note about this. Uh, you might think it, it, that there's you know, turnip greens and mashed potatoes and chicken... You might think that's part of it too. And those things are great. Uh, If you grew up in a more affluent city church, you might think church is about coming together reverently and quietly with your hands folded, listening to a very intelligent academic preacher never raising his voice. You might think that church is about building habitat homes or mission trips or raising money and helping. That might be what you think church is. If you grew up in a church with a hierarchical structure, a more liturgical worship style, you might think church is all about order and reverence. And if you grew up around a church that 
uh, is more evangelistic or non-denominational, kind of Baptist, Pentecostal, that kind of flavor, you might think church is something with a lot of emotion and excitement. But all these things, are, they're cultural. Hmm. That last category is sort of the, 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 the brand I grew up in. But an outsider comes into that, and they might even call it chaotic sometimes. That's not a good thing. But an outsider goes into one of those affluent city churches with all their liturgical system, they may call it dead. And that's not good either. Now, a smaller portion of church folks, they might provide a more doctrinal answer when I say, what's the church? But... Many of the answers that appear to be based in doctrine will actually turn out to be just based in dogma and man's traditions. Again. And an even smaller portion, a remnant of God's faithful followers might actually get it right. Part of what's on my heart today, and however long this takes, is to try to help us get it right. If we're going to attempt, this this is a preface to next time because I think it's been long enough today. If we're going to attempt to answer any of these questions I asked, we're going to have to back up further than our own personal experiences, further than our culture, further than doctrine, to the underlying language and history that pre-existed any of us and any of the things that we've grown familiar and comfortable with. If you really want to answer that question, what God thinks His congregation is, we're going to have to dig back deeper than church stuff. Further than the King James Bible. Further than the English language. Back to the heart of God and what Jesus actually taught and lived. And uh, pray for me. That's what I'm going to try to bring out in the near future. You heard me say this word, ekklesia. This is how I'll close today. Ekklesia. It's a Greek word. It uh, is, comes from two Greek words. One is ek. It's a primary preposition that means out of. Or it denotes position. It comes from a particular place and gets pulled out of that. And the second part of the word ekklesia is the Greek word kaleo. And it is to call. To call by name. To bring out from there to hear by like a town crier. They go around to call with a loud voice. This call, it's like how Jesus called to, Naz- to Lazarus with a loud voice. <laughs> Rise. <laughs> These two words are put together, ek and kaleo, to form the idea of being called out. That's what the word ekklesia means. The called out. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament when the Lord said, Come out from among them, touch not the unclean thing, be separate, says the Lord, and I will restore you. We're not supposed to be blended, merged in like everything out there. We're called by the voice of the Holy Spirit, first individually, to a place of understanding our own sin. And by the grace of God, we repent of that and trust Him. And by His grace, He saves us. And the only way you know if that's happened is if the Holy Spirit has revealed it in your spirit. Has He given you peace? There is no religious formula. You can't shake my hand. You can if you want to, but it's not. this is just a dirty hand. It's not going to do anything for you. 
Being baptized won't do anything for you. You heard me say in our recent baptismal service, this is not the washing away of the sin, but the answer of a clean conscience before God. What it takes is the power of God to show you who you are and to help you repent of everything that you are and to trust Him for everything that you're not. And then He makes you a new person and writes His law and His nature inside of you. Then, those people who have been called like that by the Holy Spirit come out from their regular jobs, activities, traditions, customs and assemble together in a particular place and that is the ecclesia. It's not some invisible, I'll teach more on this later, but it's not some floating around invisible thing in the ether. The, the very definition of the Greek word is a group of people called from different places to assemble in a particular place. It's a local, visible body. And you can't be part of a body that's full of members that you don't even know who they are or where they are or how they are. My body is all in this place right here. This body is here. And I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead, but that's the word, ecclesia. The word church was invented. We'll get into that more later. But the heart of God's purpose for us and the gospel is tied up in that word. So think on these things this week. Pray for me for next time. I'll follow the Lord. If, unless He gives me something else, we'll continue with this because it's so necessary. I love you all. Let's have a song. Uh, Sister Jody, if you could get one. I want to give you a chance to stand up, let some of this sink in, and um, then we'll see if the Lord's leading anything. It almost goes without saying, if you need to seek the Lord ever, seek the Lord. If you need to pray, pray. You don't have to stay locked into where you're at. Let's sing together.